Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. And now our first scripture reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 through 18. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to to God. God. Our second scripture for today comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The word of the Lord. I want to start my sermon this morning with a warning. 
For the first little bit of this sermon, I am going to be speaking about the political atmosphere in our country. What I want you to hear is exactly what I say. There are no hidden messages. There is no hidden agenda. Please do not hear a partisan opinion as that is not in here. I'm simply explaining where I see our country. I'm not telling you my personal opinion on politics. With that said, let's begin. As a kid growing up in Michigan, I didn't know a lot about politics. The only issue I ever heard about was something to do with taxes. I grew up in a time where the only quotes that I knew that were said by the president were actually said by Dana Carvey on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Not gonna do it. Wouldn't be prudent. Once I got into high school, we would debate topics like abortion or the death penalty or gun rights, but those were pretty much all of the political arguments that we had in my school growing up. And the political atmosphere pretty much looked like a Venn diagram. Some things we could all agree on, and some things we thought differently on. But as I've aged, it seems that more and more things are being sucked into an ever-growing, wide-encompassing, with-us-or-against-us type of politics that we have today. In fact, I would say that our Venn diagram more, looks more like this now. Politics have grown to such a degree that I'm having a hard time thinking of anything that is outside of politics. Where you eat matters. If you support Chick-fil-A, then you must be a conservative or a Republican because the CEO doesn't believe in same-sex marriage. Where you shop matters. If you shop at Target, then you must be a liberal or a Democrat because their CEO supports transgender individuals using whichever bathroom corresponds to their gender identity. Your shoes, your coffee, which ride-sharing app you use, your phone, your computer, what news you watch, what podcasts you listen to, what sitcoms you enjoy, what movies you see or you purposefully do not see, what music artists you listen to or you purposefully do not listen to, what we think about athletes standing or kneeling, healthcare, climate change, vaccines, Confederate flags, everything is polarized and politicized. This is especially problematic as each side continues to recede from one another, leaving no room in the middle of our Venn diagram for any overlap, no space in the middle for compromise. You're either on this side or you're on the other side. You're either with us or you're against us. Instead of a Venn diagram, we have two buckets and everything that happens in the world falls into one of those buckets. One side claims it, and the other side must disavow it. We've started treating our political discussions on difficult topics and complex issues like we do our sports teams. If a company or a celebrity doesn't align with what we believe is right, then we write them off. We swear to never shop there again or see another movie or TV show with that person in it because they are against me. 
Sometimes this is warranted, but not nearly as much as we allow ourselves to fall into this. I'm not sure exactly how we got here, but I do know that in the last decade now, it seems that no matter what one side of the aisle does, the other side has to come out and speak fully against it. This was the case with Obama and the Republicans, and it is still the case with Trump and the Democrats. Now, I'm going to be presenting some facts here, and they're just facts and figures. I'm not making a comment about either side, because trust me, I fully believe it takes two to tango, and so no side is without fault. For the eight years that Obama was in office, he had 60 bill-signing ceremonies, which seems like a lot, until you see that George W. Bush had 95 and Bill Clinton had 91 in each of their eight years. In fact, you need to go back to 1985 to have a year as low as President Obama had in four of his eight years. The next picture here, you can see that the amount of enacted laws passed by each Congress has been steadily going down. Enacted laws were hovering around four, five, and six percent. And then in 2007 onward, we see three percent, three percent. 2%, 3%, 3%, and then this year, 1%. Which to me, more than a comment on our president or members of Congress individually, speaks to this widening gap of today's politics. We get less accomplished because we have lost the ability to conceive that we might be wrong, or at least we have lost the ability to compromise. I think that lately there has been a concerted effort on the part of everyone in government to have things their way or no way at all. I bring this up not only because it is in and of itself a problem that we need to fix, but because it is actually the backdrop of the nation where two weeks ago massive groups of protesters gathered in Charlottesville. Now, I'm sure that you've been hearing about Charlottesville for the last two weeks like me, and some of you might be sick of hearing about it. But this was on my heart two weeks ago when I preached, but I only had half a day to change my entire sermon, so I decided not to do that. But it stayed on my heart. So please indulge me and listen to one more thing about Charlottesville. One side of protesters were using the removal of another Confederate statue as a launch point to gather. But when I watched an interview of one of those leaders, it was clear that their agenda had little to do with the actual statue. Why don't you tell me what you think? Huh? Who, what do you do for the Daily Sermon? I am a feature writer. I do the crypto report, and uh, I'm generally their man on the ground at events. So uh, what do you hope to get out of today? Like, wh- why, what does it mean to you? Well, for one thing, it means that we're showing to this parasitic class of anti-white vermin that this is our country. This country was built by our forefathers. It's sustained by us. It's going to remain our country. I believe, as you can see, we are stepping off the Internet in a big way. 
uh, for instance, last night at the Torch Walk, there were hundreds and hundreds of us. People realize they're not atomized individuals. They're part of a larger whole because we have been spreading our memes. We have been organizing on the internet. And so now they're coming out. And now, as you can see today, we greatly outnumbered the uh, anti-white, anti-American filth. And at some point, we will have enough power that we will clear them from the streets forever. That which is degenerate in white countries will be removed. So you're saying showing up in physical space help, lets people know that like, there are more like them. We're, right? we're starting to slowly unveil a little bit of our power level. You ain't seen nothing yet. To show their power, to let other people know that there are more like them, and to clear the filth from their streets. That's what this was about. He failed to mention the statue once. I don't think that he and many others represented by him actually cared about the statue at all. They had and they have their own agenda of what they would describe as racially cleansing America. And because of our political climate, when liberals showed up in force to say that this is not right, it put conservatives into a very odd place. The culture says that if you're a conservative or a Republican because the liberals and Democrats stood up against this issue, that you have to stand up for it. And that space is something that I think Melissa Francis captures very well here. Can I tell you this? I am so uncomfortable having this conversation. And that's what this woman said before this, because I know what's in my heart. And I know that I don't think anyone is different, better or worse based on the color of their skin. But I feel like there is nothing any of us can say right now without being judged. You know, Melissa. I don't think that this is something that you can defend any part of at this point and not be judged. And here's why. This event is not political. Pundits might have you believe that it is. News shows might have you believe that it is. Leaders might have you believe that it is, but it is not. Hate is not political. Choosing against hate is the only choice. Choosing against bigotry and racism is the only choice. Choosing against that belief that you are better than someone simply based on the color of their skin or their gender or who they love is the only choice. Jesus makes this clear for us. There is no other side. There is no counterpoint. There is no lively debate. As soon as Nazi flags comes out, slurs are thrown or people are run over, you are on the wrong side. You have chosen against the message of Christ. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. In our first scripture today, Paul reminds us to think, not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And to me, when we think better of ourselves than someone else based purely on superficial things, then we have crossed that line. Paul goes on to remind us that we are members of one body and that no one member of the body is more important than any other member. He continues even further and says, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with mutual affection, outdo each other in showing honor. 
You see, some people would use the Bible and the name of God to further their own agenda of racism and bigotry or racial cleansing and cultural heritage, but this is not the scripture. This is not Jesus' message. This is not what God wants for God's children. This is not political. We have to join together against this repugnancy. We have to stand up and say, this is enough. It is not enough to say, well, personally, I don't agree with them, but they do have their First Amendment right to say whatever they want and protest. Whereas that is true, that is not enough. We allow bad things, evil things to be said and spread, and we do nothing because they have the right. I saw a nation explode with rage over a backup quarterback deciding to take a knee during the, first, the national anthem. Where's the rage when it counts? No, we shouldn't take their rights away. No, we shouldn't cause them physical harm, but we cannot allow this to fall into one of the buckets. If we allow this kind of hatred to become politicized, then we have already validated it. So all sides need to condemn this. What needs to happen is what happened in Boston last week when a rally fueled by bigotry was organized. Roughly 20 people showed up. Counter-protesters rallied in the thousands. We need to, as a whole people, say that racism has no place, that bigotry is not welcome, and that we will stand up against any form of hate. This is what we must do as Christians, no matter our political leanings. We cannot allow hate to have a foothold. We must snuff it out wherever it is found. We must remind those who claim the name of Jesus and still hold bigotry in their hearts for their neighbors that Jesus taught the exact opposite. We must love our neighbors. This commandment constantly prodded my mind these two weeks. Love your neighbor. We don't get to decide who those neighbors are. Love your neighbor. We don't get to terrorize and threaten our neighbor with burning crosses and Nazi flags until they move out and we get neighbors we like more. Love your neighbor. We can't decide that we want to have an America that is all white and then love our neighbor. We must love those who are already here. Love your neighbor. It rang like an alarm in my head even after I wrote all of this down. Love your neighbor. Directed at those who hate, but also directed at me. Love your neighbor. I have to love my neighbor. Love your neighbor, even my neighbor that makes me ill with their bigotry and ignorance. Love your neighbor. I have to love those who call out white power and blood and soil, a 19th century anti-Semitic chant from Nazi Germany. Love your neighbor. I have to love those who marched against half of my family even being allowed to live here. I have to love those people who wouldn't approve of my black father and my white mother getting married and having mixed-race children. How? What does that even look like?
Here's where we have to break down what love is. Many people think that loving your neighbor or loving your enemies, which is another one of Jesus' commands, is just letting them live their life however they want. They think that if you love someone you disagree with, that that means you have to live and let live. Say, we have to agree to disagree, but I disagree. I don't think that that's love. I think that that's weakness, and I don't think that love is weak. I think about it this way. When your child is acting up in the store, do you just allow them to run wild? Throw breakable things, pull things off shelves, yell and scream, open candy and eat it. Do you allow them to do this because you love them? Or do you stop them from doing that? Do you correct their behavior, tell them that this is not how we do things, make it obvious that this is not how we act in social settings like grocery stores? I think this is more loving. When your child is doing something that puts themselves or others in danger or something that is unacceptable because it does not take into account the people surrounding them, then they need to be corrected. They need to be taught how to interact. And this is more loving in the long run because it saves them from public humiliation, possible punishments from law enforcement, or any number of other things. Your actions to stop your child in the store are for all parties involved, yourself, the other shoppers, and your child. You're not stopping them because you don't love them but precisely the opposite. Because your child had this outburst, or even if they always have an outburst in grocery stores, you don't love them less. You just correct the behavior and continue to love them. Now this parallel is difficult because these neo-Nazis and white supremacists aren't your children, nor are they children. So another parallel that I like to draw is if your sibling was an alcoholic, would you allow them to continue to abuse alcohol or would you step in because you love them and stop the behavior? But again, These neo-Nazis are not your siblings. You are not compelled to love them innately like you are your own family. And the stakes are much higher than a grocery store tantrum. But I hold that the core is the same. The way we love those involved is through correction and teaching. And that's going to be tough because it's not going to happen through Facebook posts or shouting matches. We, specifically our demographic, needs to be willing to have these tough conversations with friends and families and even strangers who say these things to us. We cannot allow this mentality to continue We correct in love not only for ourselves but for everyone who has to hear this bigotry and for those who are spewing such terrible things themselves. Now I know that there are times when we don't 
want to have these conversations, where we think that we can't change people's minds, that people are too far gone. If you're willing to say X, Y, and Z, or you're willing to do this or that, then you must be beyond saving. You must be beyond redemption. But I can't believe that. It goes against the core of me. It goes against everything I believe as a Christian, and it goes against one of the most formative things in my life. You see, my grandpap was an amazing man. I loved him dearly. I remember going to his house in Lansing throughout my whole life. He always was working on a puzzle. He had a cantaloupe or a muskmelon in his house at all times. He always had two to four gallons of ice cream in his freezer if he knew that we were coming over. He had a random box of peanuts on his back deck so that we could feed the squirrels in his backyard. But above all else, he loved me and my sister very much. He was always happy to see us, asked about our lives, wanting to know everything. He would take us out to eat, which was always appreciated, but especially when I was in college in East Lansing. He wanted to know what was going on in our lives. He would give us advice, hug us as much as he could, and he always spelled like Old Spice. He would play games with us, and he was just happy to be with us. He passed away in March 2008, and I miss him often. I remember going to his funeral with my family and seeing him in his casket and thinking, he doesn't look right. It didn't look like him. He was missing his warmth, his jolliness, the thing that made him him. It was a tough ceremony to get through. The following Thanksgiving and Christmas were also tough. We all missed him. And we would randomly have individual moments of tears. But we got through it by telling stories and sharing laughter together. I can't remember exactly when I heard this particular story, but it was after he had passed away. And it wasn't at Thanksgiving or Christmas. It was just a story shared between me and my parents. You see, my mom and dad, through a lot of time and effort, had finally found each other, and they decided that they wanted to get married. But when my mom told my grandpap, he told her that he wouldn't be attending the wedding. He didn't approve of her choice of spouse. He took issue with the fact that my father was black, and ultimately, that prevented him from coming to my parents' wedding. My mother once told me that my grandmother never forgave him for this. This whole story took me by surprise. I never knew anything but love from my grandpap. I'd never experienced him treating my five other cousins differently than me or Lindsay. In fact, I was probably treated with more love and affection because I was his only grandson. I didn't know what to think or what to feel. I felt betrayed, hurt, sick. How could this man that I knew as loving and caring and kind be the same man in this story who was prejudiced and stubborn and stupid? 
It took me a while to parse this out, but they weren't the same man. See, I got the information in a backwards way, and so the change happened in reverse to me. But the man who refused to go to his daughter's wedding in 1977, that wasn't my grandpap. Not yet. Through my grandmother, my mother, my father, all continuing to be a part of his life, continuing to love him, continuing to challenge his views, he grew into my grandpap. He grew into the man I knew, the man I loved, and the man I miss. There wasn't a big, grandiose moment where the change just happened. There wasn't a Hollywood backtracking of the moment and a sudden realization. We've been programmed to think this way by TV and movies. Even I, while writing the sermon, called my sister and my mom and my dad, seeking this moment out. I asked my dad, didn't Grandpap have a meaningful moment with you later in life where he reached out to you and entrusted you with something or asked you for a favor? And none of them could give me the moment I was looking for. Because that's not how change happens. That's not how growth works. It's a process, a long, arduous process. So I can't believe that people are too far gone. I can't believe that redemption is not possible. I have seen the results of it. I have seen the outcome of hard work, but it is hard work. It is not a switch in someone's mind that you can turn on and off with the right post or the right sentence. It takes years and years of hard work, but we have to do it. We have to get in there and love these people because you never know who they can become and who they can affect. We have to be willing to do the difficult task of choosing love, love for those who are oppressed, who feel personally attacked by hate and bigotry, who don't feel like this country is safe for them to live or to raise children in. We have to love them by standing up against the bigotry. But we also have to love the oppressors who are yelling and screaming and full of malice. We have to love them by doing the hard work of correction and teaching. This kind of thing that happened two weeks ago should not happen in the US. As Christians, we must always stand against hate Period. Full stop. Let us have the courage to do what is right and the patience to teach others to do so as well. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org. For more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Prez family of faith.